So let's hear the Spirit's voice to his people this morning. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, The words of the Holy One, the True One, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. I know you have but little power, and yet you've kept my word and not denied my name. Behold, I'll make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I'll make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. Because you've kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that's coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I'll make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. And I'll write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem which comes down from my God out of heaven, and my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. A number of years ago, I was uh, in America at one of these giant Christian conferences. I've never been to anything like it. A friend got me a free ticket, essentially, and a free flight. And it was extraordinary. You went in, uh, and it was in a basketball stadium. It held don't know how many thousand. I've never been to anything like it uh, in the UK. Uh, and because my friend was uh, speaking or was doing a seminar at this uh, this conference, um, and I was his kind of plus one, his wife couldn't go, so he got, he got to take me instead to carry his bags. Uh, we got special lanyards, okay, children's special things you wear, wear around your neck. Uh, and I, I didn't look at it very carefully, it had my name on it, I didn't take a particular kind of second look. But as we walked in and started heading out into this vast auditorium just to find our seats in the crowd, um, a huge guy in a suit uh, called us over. No, 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 he said, come over here. And so we kind of went over to him. And he said, VIP area, this way. The whole stadium had been cordoned off with a little row at the front, about 20 places, that looked like looked like a kind of VIP area in a club. Not that I've ever been in a VIP area in a club, but how I imagine a VIP area in a club uh, would look. And it was being guarded by, genuinely, by security guys. It was totally surreal. And yet, if I'm honest, a little bit of me liked it. <laughs> we like being in, don't we? Hey, come, come and sit in the, the front couple of rows. There were some, some big name speakers there. John Piper. We, I was sat in a row. It was from John Piper, Tim Keller, Kevin DeYoung. These were all these sort of famous speakers. And then, yeah, just me on the end. <laughs> we, we enjoy being in. And we hate being out. We know the dynamic of, of not being in the gang, the club, the group that we want to be in. Uh, this week, thousands and thousands of 18-year-olds got their A-level results. And a whole bunch of people, it seems, haven't got into the universities they wanted to. And it's painful, isn't it? Even at a social level, often in schools, children, perhaps you have this amongst your friends, there are some social gatekeepers, that the group or the person that lets you into the gang, and sometimes you know you're in and it feels like everyone likes you, and sometimes it just feels like you're not, and some people don't. 
Uh, This letter is all about doors, all about being let in or shut out. The theme of doors and buildings runs right through uh, the letter. And that's why in verse 7, Jesus introduces himself as the one who holds the key. Each letter, each time Jesus addresses the churches, he addresses them in a particular way. A way that suits the theme of what he's going to say to them. And here, verse 7, he's the Holy One, the true one who has the key of David. He's open and shut. And that's what they're for. And Jesus says, look, I hold the key of David. Uh, he's referring to a passage in the Old Testament. We won't look it up. It's back in Isaiah. But, but where it's explained that, or rather this language of the keys, are explained as, as, as having access to the kingdom. Uh, David was the king, and there was a character called Elkanah. And Elkanah held the keys. And essentially, if, if Elkanah let you in, you had access to, to David and his throne room. And if Elkanah didn't let you in, well, no chance. Jesus is saying, I hold those keys ultimately, but not access to a throne room in Jerusalem. I have the keys. I am the one who decides who comes into heaven. Children, this, this door is a gateway to heaven. I let you in. And I keep others out. It is through me you must come. Jesus is the ultimate social gatekeeper, if you like. And he's reassuring the church in Philadelphia right at the start that what ultimately matters is that they are in with him. No matter how many other groups will push them out. And so we're going to ask two questions uh, this morning. The first, very simply, is this. What's it like to be in with Jesus? What's it like to be in with Jesus, to be those who are welcome through this door? Those for whom the, the gate of eternal life is open and entrance is certain. Uh, and make no mistake, this church is in. Uh, this is one of only two churches in, in the, of the seven about whom Jesus says nothing critical. I hope if you've been here over the last few weeks, you'll see that the, the letters follow a similar pattern. He introduces himself, and then he says, I know your works. And what tends to happen after that is there's a, there's a mixture. Oh, I know you've done well here. Perhaps you've been good evangelistically. But there's always a but. But I have this against you. You tolerate false teaching. Or, but I have this against you. You've lost your first love. It's classic school report in many ways. Done really well here, but but there is no but in Philadelphia. I wonder if you noticed that as I read the letter. There is nothing that Jesus critiques. Does that mean they're sinless? Well, of course not. Who is? But this is a church that is fully in with Christ. And therefore, he makes a wonderful promise to them right at the start. I know your works, verse 8. Behold, I've set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. At this door, this gateway to eternal life, Jesus says, I've thrown it open and no one can shut it. Uh, Heaven ought to have been like a a castle with the, the gate pulled up, the portcullis dropped. No one ought to be able to walk into heaven. I think some of the Psalms we sing sometimes, Psalm 15. Oh Lord, who may abide in your tent? Who may dwell on your holy hill? And the answers come by giving a, dis- a-, a description of essentially a-, a-, a seemingly perfect life. He who has no deceit in his heart, who does not slander, 
He whose ways are blameless, whose hands are clean. And we think that is not me. And it isn't. It's the same thing again in Psalm 24. Who can get into God's castle? Who can get through the front door? No one. But Jesus says, I have opened the door. He who was blameless, he who lived the, the, the perfect life, the one we should have lived, has thrown open those gates and holds them open and no one can shut them. The angel Gabriel cannot slam the doors of heaven in your face if you come in Jesus' name. The devil cannot slam the doors of heaven in your face when you come in Jesus' name. Your own sinful nature cannot keep you from entering the doors of heaven when you come in Jesus' name. The Father cannot shut the doors of heaven in your face when you come in Jesus' name, because Jesus has held those doors open. You are secure, he says to this church. Because you've come to put your trust in me. So this is the church that is in with Jesus, as it were. And yet what's life like for them? What's the experience for them? It's perhaps not quite what we'd expect. Verse 8 again. I've set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power. They have firstly little power. I'm not told exactly why they've got little power or what it means. Uh, perhaps it's size. They're not, not a giant church. We tend to equate size with power, don't we? A successful church is a big church. A small church, there's probably something going wrong. Perhaps it's influence. And maybe there were few in Philadelphia from the elite classes or the wealthy classes. A few of the poets, a few of the generals, a few of the politicians. Again, we love success, don't we? Influence. Uh, this, uh, I think particularly in, in the UK in the last 15 years or so, there's been a, a huge amount of talk about wanting to transform the culture. I guess partly in response to the fact that that pretty obviously the the culture in general is moving further and further away from what you might loosely call Christian values. There's been this uh, movement that says, well, we've got to get out of that and not not just evangelise, of course we must do that, but also transform the culture. Well, there's no transforming the culture going on in Philadelphia. Uh, They were weak, at least in the eyes of the world. They feel powerless, even as those for whom the doors of heaven are wide open, even as those who, as it were, can stare up and see the welcome awaiting, see that the crown of righteousness that awaits in Jesus' hands, see that the Father's throne as a throne of grace, see the throngs of angels waiting to welcome them home, and yet life on earth feels so weak, so powerless. So ineffective. And yet Jesus says, you are anything but. You have kept my word, verse 8, and have not denied my name. That is my measure of success as Jesus. Never mind what the the church planting gurus tell you. Never mind what the world tells you the church ought to be like. And that goes on all the time. Uh, I come from a a largely non-Christian family. And I remember being at one of my extended families... um, for lunch uh, uh, quite a few years back uh, and he, he's one of these guys who doesn't matter what job you do he's got some advice for you 
Okay, he's a businessman, he's kind of self-made, so fair play to him. But um, he, he just knows. You could be a car mechanic, he'll give you a little advice. You could be a brain surgeon, he's got a little bit of help. Um, never been to church in his life. I recently used to become a church minister. And, and over lunch, across the table, hey James, which is my real name, um, you know, have you thought about, and off he goes. Eventually it turned out, he, the advice was on the basis of the fact that his brother went to church. Um, so therefore, well equipped uh, to tell them this is how to do their job. At a grander scale, the world is always telling us, look, if you want to grow, if you want to be successful, you've got to dot, 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 get with the program or tone down the doctrine or whatever it may be. Jesus says, one thing matters. You have kept my word and have not denied my name. Really, they're pretty much the same things. You've kept my word. You've held fast to the gospel message that was preached to you and not denied my name, which is upon you. You've lived as my people. Trusted me, in other words. Why might they not? What what might have pressed them into um, denying Jesus' name? Well, I think it's that the church in Philadelphia not only has little power, but it has, secondly, little popularity. Verse 9 striking, isn't it? Perhaps shocking at first glance. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan, who say they are Jews but are not, and lie. Behold, I'll make them come and bow down before your feet. Now, who is this synagogue of Satan? Well, I think, pretty simply, Jesus is saying that, that there is a group in Philadelphia who are ethnically Jewish. They descended from the 12 tribes, but who have rejected Jesus as Messiah, have said, no, he is not the son of God. He is not the son of David, the great king, the rescuer. Uh, Jesus is saying to the, to the Christians who will be mixed in the sense of some of the Christians in Philadelphia will be ethnically Jewish and many of them won't be because it's in Turkey, it's not in Israel. He's saying to this mixed group, actually, the real Jew, in other words, the real person of God, the Jews are the people of God all the way through the Old Testament, is the one who stays with the true Jewish king, me. I am the son of David. Remember, that's how he introduced himself. I hold the keys of David. I am the Jewish king. And so it seems there was a synagogue in um, Philadelphia that was persecuting, at the very least, the ethnically Jewish Christians, if not all the Christians. They were being rejected, in other words. We read about that in, in Acts. We read about it in the early church. Many times, those who were Jewish, who'd grown up with the great heritage of the Old Testament and had believed everything in the Old Testament and therefore had received Christ as Saviour and Lord when he came, well, they were thrown out of their synagogue. That would have been a huge thing. Again, we so many different nations here this morning. and Some of you might know this, what it means to be thrown out of your family. Perhaps you had a family religion. And when you came to Christ, it meant, it meant rejection for you. And you know the, the pain, the loneliness, uh, the shame even of feeling like you're no longer in. All of us will know it to some extent. If you're going to be in with Christ, you will be out with the world. There's no two ways about it. If that door into heaven is open to you and you have access, then the door in the world that opens the way to human success and glory in lots of cases will be shut 
uh, towards the end of World War II. 1944, C.S. Lewis, children, you know C.S. Lewis, he wrote the Narnia stories, The Land of Witch Wardrobe. Well, he, he, he was giving a, a lecture at Oxford, where he taught, Oxford University, <coughs> excuse me. And it's become known as the Inner Ring. And Lewis said, look, we all know there are, there are orders in society, perhaps you're in the army, and we know that generals are more important than colonels, colonels are more important than captains, captains are more important than sergeants, and so you go. And at work, there'll be a hierarchy. Perhaps you've got the CEO, and then the managers, and then the workers. Perhaps you've got the consultants in the hospital, and then the registrars, and then junior doctors. Whatever it may be, there there is an ordering. But Lewis said to these students, "But, but let me tell you that there's another ordering that no one ever tells you about, no one ever names, no one ever writes down. Lewis called it the inner ring. And he said to these students, you'll just know about it. Uh, the inner ring are, are those on the inside. And it functions in all areas of society. Think of the army. Yes, there are generals and colonels and captains and lieutenants and sergeants and corporals and privates. But if the lieutenant, somewhere in the middle there, is Lieutenant Wales, Prince William, you know that to be in with him is probably far more important than to be in with the colonel. Who may outrank him. Again, in your office, it may be the boss is in this inner ring, but it may be they're not. At school or with friends, there's the inner ring that we desperately want to be in. And the reason C.S. Lewis was giving this lecture wasn't in, um, in class, it was in chapel. It's to warn these young men, as they were largely uh, back then, that one of the greatest pressures on their life, one of the things most likely to move them away from Christ and towards evil, was the desire to be in. He said this, I believe that all, in all men's lives at certain periods, and in many men's lives at all periods, between infancy and extreme old age, one of the most dominant elements is the desire to be inside the local ring, and the terror of being left outside. Do you know that? That the terror of people thinking you're one of those extremist Christians. Oh, you don't mind being known as a Christian. As long as your colleagues, your friends, your family think Christian basically means a kind person. We all want to be known as kind people. But the terror of being outed as one of those Christians who doesn't have the right views on sex and sexuality. The terror of being outed as one of those Christians who really believes the things the Bible says. The terror of being outed as one of those Christians who thinks the Bible is the word of God. And particularly the terror that once people realise that about you, you're just going to be edged out. Again, some of you know this, family, work. The door has been shut to you. Evicted from the WhatsApp groups, not invited on the socials, the stag days, the weekends away. Children, Jesus is letting you know out of this week that as you grow up and, and, and follow Jesus, there will be times when people will say, no, we don't want to be friends with you because you're following Jesus. And Jesus says to you, keep going. It's worth it. It's worth it. It's far more important to be friends with me than friends with the world. What's it like to be in with Jesus? Well, in many ways, it's to feel weakness. Little power, little popularity. 
But what does he promise? It's the second big thing this morning. Uh, and final big thing. What's it like through the door, in other words? What is Jesus offering to this church? It's verse 9 through 13. As I said earlier, there's no critique. Nothing they're doing wrong. Nothing they need to correct. There are just promises, encouragements to this people. Summarise them in three, three Ps. Uh, first of all, they will be proven to be his people. Verse 9 uh, again. This whole issue with the synagogue of Satan, these Jews who've thrown uh, the Jewish Christians, if not all the Jews, out. Behold, Jesus says, I'll make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. What's going on here? Jesus is saying one day, those who persecuted you, those who rejected you, the inner ring who pushed you out and said, no, you're not one of us. One of the days they will see that you were right to stick with me. I don't think the idea is that we're meant to be kind of looking forward to a day when we can sneer at everyone and say, yeah, I told you so. That's, that's not the kind of dynamic of the Christian heart at all. Rather, Jesus is saying, it will be made public that I, the Lord your God, I have loved you. Those wonderful words, verse 9. I have loved you. And everyone will realise it will be proven. Uh, if that verse seems a bit sort of vindictive, a bit harsh to you. Well, it may be that it's because you, like me, haven't experienced the kind of persecution that many of God's people uh, experience if we were living in uh, the persecuted church around the world, to hear that one day a Pol Pot, one day a Kim Jong-un, would bow before us and be made to recognise uh, that God Almighty has loved us. Uh, and then perhaps the whole imagery would back a little bit more punch. Proof, Jesus says, one day, one day, everyone will know that I've loved you. And then there's protection, verse 10. Because you've kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that's coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on earth. What is Jesus talking about here? Well, let's start with this hour of trial. What is this hour of trial that's coming on the whole earth? Some have said it's a particular great tribulation, as it sometimes gets called, um, just before Jesus returns, a kind of specially bad time that Jesus is going to take the, 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 the Philadelphian Christians out of, sort of suck them out of it. I don't think it can be that, though, can it? Because the, 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 the time just before Jesus returns is clearly still, even now, in 2022, in the future. And so promising a, a struggling Christian in Philadelphia 2,000 years ago that he'll be protected through a period of, of church history that he's going to be well dead in is not much of a promise. A promise needs to be relevant to the Christians in Philadelphia. And so it seems either there was going to be a particular time of trouble and difficulty in the area where Philadelphia is, that Jesus uh, would, would protect them through, or more likely, I suspect, in the context of the whole of the book of Revelation, Jesus is just talking about the, the last days. The last days between, are the times between his going back to heaven and his return. And there will be many troubles in those days, says Jesus. I suspect that's what he's talking about. Certainly that is true. So whether it's a local persecution or whether it is the general sufferings and toughness of living for Christ. Jesus says, I will keep you from it. What does he mean? I will keep you from it. Not that you will escape it and be taken out of it. Again, this is 
There's one way it's been taught. A while ago, there were a bunch of books called the Left Behind series. I'm not sure if they're so popular anymore. Uh, but the, the idea of these Left Behind books was that uh, when this great trouble happened, the Christians were, were all kind of sucked off to heaven. There's all sorts of suffering on earth. Jesus hasn't returned properly yet, but the Christians are all whew, taken away. And so you have these slightly bizarre stories where a Christian pilot would be flying a plane and then the time of tribulation would come and the pilot would get kind of raptured off to heaven and the plane didn't have a pilot anymore. All totally bizarre, to be honest. Well-meaning, but bizarre. The idea is not escape from suffering, but keeping you through it. The only other place these words are used, keep you from in the consciousness of trial, in the whole New Testament, is in John 17, verse 15. Jesus is praying. John, who wrote Revelation, incidentally. And he says this, My prayer is not, Father, that you take them out of the world, but you protect them from the evil one. Same Greek words underneath. John 17, 15. And it's the same idea. Not that, that Jesus promises to these Christians in Philadelphia, hey, as soon as life gets hard, don't worry, whew, you'll be beamed up to heaven. You're like in Star Trek Enterprise, beam me up, Scotty, and as soon as it gets hard, don't worry, whew, straight into heaven and Gabriel will be waiting uh, with a tray of olives. No, I will protect you through the suffering. Children, do you remember the story of the lion's den and Daniel? How did God rescue Daniel from the lions. There are two ways he could have done it, aren't there? It could have been that, that when the, the soldiers, the Nebuchadnezzar soldiers, brought Daniel to the lion's den, God somehow miraculously stopped him going in there with the lions. Perhaps he could have got rid of the lions, killed the lions, or perhaps he could have rolled the stone shard. Or... But that's not how he did it, is it? Rather, do you remember what happened? Daniel was put into the den of lions. And God kept him safe in there. He was in the scary place, but safe. It was the same with his friends when they were shown, th- uh, thrown into the fiery pit. Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego. Do you remember they refused to bow down? They refused to compromise? They kept God's name? God didn't keep them from being thrown into the fiery furnace. But he did keep them from being harmed by the fiery furnace. In fact, those who looked into the pit saw not three but four in the fiery pit because God the son I guess was walking there among them that is the promise however hard life gets when when people want to reject you I will be there with you and I will keep you if you fear you can't keep going says Jesus don't worry if you feel weak don't worry I will keep you it's not a command keep yourself but a promise I will keep you Notice, by the way, life is expected to be hard for the Christian. Uh, He describes uh, those in verse 10 as those who've kept my word about patient endurance. It's often observed that that at least in the the UK, in the West, many of us live pretty comfortable lives. And it's easy to fall into believing a couple of lies. We, we, we start to believe that if it's hard, it must be wrong. If, if life is hard, either I must be doing something wrong, or God must have done something wrong, or perhaps someone else has done something wrong, and it needs rectifying. Because if things were right, they would be easy. But Jesus didn't say that. He never promises ease. 
Or, or secondly, we, we, we say, um, well, if it's hard, I'm not going to do it. Again, we might not say that out loud, but it's how we function. If something is hard, I shouldn't have to do it. And so we start avoiding all sorts of things because it's hard. And often, if we're honest, our definition of hard is pretty low. We're busy because we've got a job or something. We're busy because we've got kids. Kids are hard, I'll grant you that. Life can be very busy with work. But if we all stop doing things because life is hard, frankly, everything's going to shut down. There are very few people in the room who don't have a job, who don't have kids. There are very few people who aren't busy. And I would suggest there are probably nobody in the room who doesn't find life hard one way or another. Maybe it's not work, maybe it's not family, maybe it's something else. It is hard. Now, Jesus isn't insensitive. He says to the weak, come to me. But he's honest. Life is hard. It is a battle at times. Keep going. And I'll make you finally a pillar. I'll make you a pillar. Uh, Not just protection, but a pillar. One day, as he looks to the future, verse 12, the one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never will he go out of it, and I'll write my name on him. Or sorry, I'll write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God and my new name. What's the promise here? Jesus is using the imagery of the temple being the house of God, the place where God lives. And he's saying to this struggling church, you will be firm pillars within it. Nothing will be able to remove you. Nothing will be able to remove you ultimately from heaven. He's looking forward, not to a, a physical temple, but, but, to, uh, but, but to the whole people of God gathered in heaven. That's why at the end of Revelation... Uh, he described the new Jerusalem, the people of God coming down. The people are like a city. Children, he's going to turn you into a pillar. It doesn't mean you're going to become stone. It means he will make sure you are never thrown out again. There's something wonderfully reassuring about that. Total security. God's name, Jesus' name, the name of the city itself, written on you. It's like being Mr. Jones, who lives on Jones Street in Jonestown. You know where you belong. That will be wonderful for, for many Christians at some point in their Christian journey. Uh, for lots of Christians at almost all points in their Christian journeys, they have a real struggle with the question of, do I really belong to Jesus? I, I want to believe, but, but have I really? Have I really believed? Have I really repented? Has he really forgiven me? Am I a real Christian or have I tricked myself? Are the Puritans used to often quote Isaiah 50 verse 10, let the one who walks in the dark, who has no light, trust in the name of the Lord and rely on their God. It is a real Christian experience, as in real Christians, experience the feeling of uncertainty. Now, if you've been spared that, wonderful. (laughs) Praise God. But many of us aren't. And it comes to many of us at some point in our life. And it may last a week, it may last a month, it may last a year, it may last a decade, it may last a lifetime. You read of some of the great saints of the past who struggled for ages with it. Now, the Bible affirms that that happens, that, that verse, that the one who walks in the dark, trust in the name of the Lord, rely on their God. Yes, it, it feels dark, but keep trusting. 
Cal- John Calvin, who was a great uh, man of God, uh, wrote this. We cannot imagine any certainty that is not tinged with doubt or any assurance that isn't attacked by some anxieties. Believers are in perpetual, constant conflict with their own unbelief. That's what your heart is like, this Calvin. Even the most confident Christian sometimes struggles. So how wonderful will it be for all those anxieties to be gone one day? Jesus, one day there'll be no doubt. You'll never fall out of heaven. You can never sin once you're in heaven. You can never unbelieve yourself out of heaven. One day you'll be totally secure. One day you will know you are on the inside. You will be on the inside and you will be safe. So just hold on, verse 11. Just hold on to the gospel. Don't need to do anything else. It's not try harder, do more. Hold fast what you have. Time and again, that's been the, the, the command in these letters in Revelation. It's there in 3 3, it's there in 2 25. Hold fast. You don't need to add something to your faith. Hold fast to the gospel you've heard. Stick with me because I am the strength, I am the power, I have opened the door, I will not throw you out. Christian, this morning, that is what Jesus is saying to you. However weak you feel, however uncertain you feel, however much you're battling with your own unbelief. I will not throw you out, he says, if you come to me. The poorest believer, the weakest believer, who truly believes that moment from Jesus, a pardon receives. Rest in him. Never mind how many other doors are closed to you, however many other rings you're thrown out of, circles you're excluded from. And he will welcome you to the most glorious eternity that you can even begin to imagine.